Have you ever wanted to live in a, um, a different era in time, in history? And if so, what do you think you would have done in that particular era? I've always wanted to live in the 40s for some reason. I don't know why. I like that particular period. As a matter of fact, um, there was a, a lady years ago who did a, a past life reading on me. And according to her, she knew nothing about me. Uh, this was after a comedy show in Indianapolis, Indiana. She, uh, she said that in my past life, I was a private investigator in the 40s. And I'm like, wow. Well, now what she didn't know is that prior to doing stand-up comedy and radio and everything else, I actually was a private investigator uh, in real life. She said I was a private investigator in the 40s, and then she got a really serious, furrowed brow. And I go, what? She goes, it, it didn't end well. I said, what do you mean? She goes, whatever case you were working on, you were horribly murdered. Which I could see. I, 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 I could see that. I could see that happening. I could totally see that happening. I say the 40s, some people say the 20s, uh, the, the roaring 20s, and the uh, the age of prohibition, where things were really crazy, and that, and that leads me to our podcast for this evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, I'm Dino Tripodis, your host for Whiskey Business, a podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey, but tonight, it's kind of all about the whiskey and history. The guest bottle tonight is... George Remus, that's right, king of the bootleggers. This is a, a pretty good bottle. It falls into the, our favorite whiskey business category of under 50 bucks. It retails for somewhere between 37 and 42 bucks a bottle. It's, uh, it comes from MGP, Midwest Grain Products, who uh, you've tasted their stuff before because they're a huge supplier for some of your, especially your your, your, your rye, rye whiskeys, um, uh, they're responsible for your Angel's Envy rye and your Bullet rye and your Templeton rye, and, and that's just to name a few. But this is the first time that they stepped up on their own and came up with uh, George Remus Straight Bourbon Whiskey. We'll talk about the whiskey a little bit more and how my guests or guest and my uh, cohorts here on Whiskey Business, my producer Greg Hansberry and video YouTube producer John Whitney, what they think about it. But it's, uh, it, it's pretty pretty good and we'll talk more about the george remus whiskey why the george remus whiskey today i love it when i love it when it all comes together making his third appearance on whiskey business is another friend and fellow podcaster alex hasty from hasty legal he is an attorney and he is also uh the uh the host of ohio v the world thank you yeah. third appearance Third appearance Number as three. we kick off your third season of yes, Ohio v. Right. the World. Cheers to that. Yeah, and a pretty good one right out of the gate, uh, Ohio v. the Moon. Yeah, our Neil Armstrong episode came out. That's very timely with the <clears throat> was. with the with the movie out. Yeah, you were actually at the premiere in Wapakoneta. I was. Yeah, that's my, pretty awesome. My wife and I went to a red carpet situation. It was great. Uh, it's they got an old theater out there in Wapakoneta where he's from. Uh, had a couple hundred people. They screened the movie. They had uh, were there stars. There was no Ryan Gosling There's in no attendance. Ryan. Yeah, my wife was disappointed. He's so dreamy. He is dreamy. Uh, but it's a great film, and Damien Chazelle, the director, is is really talented. Our video producer, uh, John Whitney, recently saw it, and he says it, it kicks ass. He it says really, it's really is. Well, it's, well, he's it's, a great director. Yeah, it's just really well shot, and I think it could be up for some some awards for, for just the technical stuff. A little Oscar fodder yeah, in, a little in bit. the making. Yep. Uh, and a great podcast, too, by the way. Thank great you. way to kick off season three. So, um, and, and Ohio v. The World is, uh, I, I think it's probably, it stands alone as being a, a unique podcast. Uh, it's it, the only Ohio history podcast. Right. That's kind of why I started it, to yeah. kind of fill that, uh, that void that people didn't know existed. Because you're also involved, <laughs> you're, no, because you know, you're very much into Ohio history. As a yeah. matter of fact, you are what? the uh, we, I got named to the board of the uh, Ohio History Connection, so they're kind of the main agency that, you know, keeps all the archives and and we manage sites all over the state uh used to be the ohio historical society they changed their name to the ohio history connection to sound a little less elite 
Yeah, that was before little... I got there. So I always say, oh, yeah, I'm on the board with the Ohio History Connection, formerly known as the Ohio because no one the, knows the, what you're talking the, about. But uh, The Ohio History Connection sounds like it's fun for the kids. It is. It's it a is. Kids show. Yeah. yeah. And so cool I'm, theme song. Come connect to Ohio. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, uh, I think that's one of the reasons I'm on the board is just that they wanted you know take a more youthful approach and, and – uh, they see what I'm doing with Ohio history, trying to bring younger people into the into the realm of history. And there's well, a bunch of cool, um, like small Ohio people that you you like. Oh, that dude's from Ohio, so it's yeah. kind of cool for you to be yeah. able to talk about You've those got the, unknown heroes. And then they've been an awesome. They've been helping with the show since we started, anyways. Um, they got in on it before I even released it. Somehow they found out. Um, and so they've been awesome about getting me guests and and doing all that kind of stuff. Well, it's entertaining, and it's also you know. You learn. Yeah, you know, actually, I'm sorry. You learn. Yeah. You learn things. I mean, you know, whether we're like, oh, it's kind of fascinating. At the same time, entertaining. And that's why I love having you on the podcast. That We've kind of made this verbal agreement that um, you'll be on every, right around the same time you kick off your season, you'll come and join us for something. Right. Our first one was about Prohibition. We had a great, that was our first one. Yeah, why, why it was Ohio's fault. Oh, yeah, why it was Ohio's fault. So that was more about why Prohibition happened. Right. Right. Second one was uh, the battle between Ohio and Michigan. Yes, the Toledo War. And on that first podcast, uh, since it was about Prohibition, we had the Templeton Lie, which was uh, a Prohibition whiskey. I thought it was a great whiskey. Yeah. No, well, I told you why it was a lie, because they were putting stuff on the label that wasn't completely accurate. But yeah. it's, still, it's still a great riot. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Uh, then the second one, uh, Ohio versus Michigan, we had a bottle of bourbon from Traverse City. Yeah. And now this one, we're talking about the king of bootleggers from Cincinnati, Ohio, Correct. George Remus. And we have a bottle of George Remus. You're really on theme, my I'm man. You're on you, theme. Man, that, that, you know what? That if nothing, if nothing else goes right tonight, <laughs> then it is then, your most on theme bourbon that you've ever yeah, put out there. You know, talking about George Remus, drinking George Remus. I love it. Let's talk about George Remus, the king of the bootleggers. Um, he he uh, he was born in Germany and then moved over here with his family. Is yeah, and, and got into. Uh, the pharmacy business. Yeah, you're right. So he moved here, born in Berlin, uh, outside Berlin in the, I think, 1874-ish. Moves to Chicago. Um, and his father gets sick and he has to go to work at like age 13 or 14, which I assume every person in the late 1900s yeah, did. Yeah, I would imagine so. Like, yeah. you get to sixth grade and they're like, well, that's it. Um, and he went to work at his uncle's pharmacy. Um, and learn the pharmacy game. By the time he's 19, he, he's a pharmacist, and he owns his own pharmacy in, in Chicago. Um, and like you said, German immigrant, um, you know, hardworking guy who ends up uh, going to law school and becoming a, a lawyer in Chicago. Because he, he, he got tired of being a, a pharmacist? Yeah, I think so. I just think he didn't really love it. It wasn't um, his calling? Yeah, it wasn't his calling. So he's a lawyer by the time he's probably 23 or 24 years old. Um, and he becomes a, a high-powered lawyer, a successful one. Yeah, very successful criminal defense attorney. I read where at the at the at that time he was making like fifty G's a year, which in today's money would be like six hundred eleven thousand dollars a year. Yes. So he was making bank. Yeah, he was known around around the city. You know, he he was in a building. He shared a building off Clark Street uh, with Clarence Darrow, who's kind of known as the greatest lawyer you know of all time. They were friends. Was he? Uh, we're was gonna he? we're doing a Clarence Darren uh, so episode. Far. Was he was he the greatest lawyer ever? He was a great lawyer. He was also kind of a freak. Like he was really into like uh, free love, uh, a lot a lot of new age types of ways of living, bohemian type yeah. ways of living. I guess they'd call it back then. Um, he was a, he was a great attorney. He just kind of a freak. That's all. So we're having John Saya and a professor from Ohio State to talk about Ohio versus lawyering is what oh, I'm calling. Oh, nice! Uh, but nice. we're going to talk about Darrow and really was he, you know, what made him so great, or and you know what were some of his failings. So he's a friend of uh, he's a friend of Remus's, and Remus becomes a really high powered attorney in Chicago, um, and he really gets known for doing a, a case involving. It's really his first connection to Cincinnati. Um, he does a murder case where he tries to defend a Cincinnati businessman who killed his wife in a Chicago hotel. Uh, he thought she was cheating on him and he killed her and he's pretty much clearly guilty. And he brings up this idea of temporary insanity uh, that William Hosea Ellis was the guy's name. And 
he tries to really you know corner the market on what we see now as kind of a typical uh, defense for, right. for for a murder. But this is really radical at the time, and he also sure. he ultimately ends up uh, being found guilty, and they don't they don't buy it. Uh, but that's the kind of that's an argument that he would use you know later in his life. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit yeah. later because that's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, and so he becomes a lawyer, and then he he starts to see that uh, a lot of his clients who are criminals are getting rich. Yeah, and I mean really rich and fast because. Prohibition is now in effect. Right. So Prohibition starts in 1920. Um, and Remus is defending these guys, these gangsters that he knows from his other, you know, through other clients. And they are getting just smacked with these $10,000, $15,000 fines. Um, the judge named another Ohio guy, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, is a district judge in Chicago. He later becomes the baseball commissioner after the Black Sox scandal. He, he's someone who's credited with cleaning up baseball but he's a real son of a bitch uh and him and remus don't get along at all you know remus would do these four and five hour you know opening and closing arguments and and so was he colorful he was very colorful very colorful and he'd bring in you know just all kinds of different things that had nothing to do with the case and that's kind of how the law was back then i feel like i think guys like darrow they would talk for hours and hours um I, i think i asked you this on a previous podcast but let me ask it again would you have loved to have been a lawyer back then uh, I think it would have been fun, but it's not. It's I don't understand how they did all the paperwork and, and like you'd have to type maybe, and write. I mean, I don't know how they did all that with maybe, without maybe computers. They, maybe they didn't have it. Yeah, maybe it just didn't <laughs> exist. Maybe um, they just had some notes. But he starts representing these guys, and they're you know when I do a case and, and say somebody gets a fine, a lot of times you'll ask the judge for sixty, ninety days to pay. Right. These guys are paying fifteen thousand dollars in cash on the spot at the courthouse. Um, and they're peeling off $1,000 bills to do it. And so Remus is sitting here. And he's representing people that he thinks are much, you know, much stupider than he is. Who, you know, people who are getting caught. People who are bad criminals. Um, and, and he says... Bad as... Bad as they're as, bad at being bad criminals. At, bad, at, <laughs> bad at being criminals. Dumb criminals. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's safe to assume if you're a criminal, you're bad. Right, you're right. They're just stupid. Stupid criminals. Um, and he... Starts to think, you know, and he's getting all these connections in this underworld as, as Prohibition comes in 1920. Um, he's got this pharmacy background, uh, and that's one of the great ways to get your liquor is through your pharmacist, through your doctor. Well, that's what he did. He memorizes the Volstead Act. I mean, he, he knows it in and out, yep. and he finds that loophole where right. he can actually buy whiskey. And he, so, so, so he buys a distillery and a pharmacy. And pharmacies, and that's how he exactly gets his liquor out. He called it the circle. So he basically was the supplier and the seller and the transporter, um, and that's really what leads him to move to, to Cincinnati. And that's where his you know Ohio story kind of takes off. And I also heard that, what, and you can back this up that he would actually once he bought that he would actually have his own people hijack his whiskey exactly. Yeah, so he could sell it illegally. Right. So nobody's really. He's not really losing, you know. There's no, no, there's nobody. It's his whiskey to lose, um, and he can file a claim and say, "Yeah, I don't know these these people hijacked us on the road. And they took all the whiskey, and it's gone. It's gone." So, except for it wasn't gone. It was just moved to another car and it was put out on the streets in Chicago and right, New York and right. Boston and Cincinnati and Cleveland. And um, that was a major way that he did it. He would That's genius. You know, he would hijack his his own car. Smart. Yeah. yeah. So. What he does is he he starts looking around and he he doesn't want to start in Chicago. There's too many gangsters in Chicago, um, and it's you know the market's already been set. You know you got guys like Capone and and Johnny Torrio. Um, you know there's some pretty mean some mean dudes in in Chicago, um, but he knows those guys. He uses them as a connection and he looks at a map, and he's been to Cincinnati. He's had experience there. He knows it's on the river. He knows it's a town full of German immigrants, which would appeal to him as a German immigrant. Um, and he also knows that that's really close. It's the biggest city to whiskey land. You know, all the 80% of the bonded warehouses, they're called, all these warehouses that had whiskey and bourbon and, and, you know, gin, they're all just sitting in these warehouses and they've been locked up by the government. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he goes and his plan is to move to Cincinnati where he can be within a couple hundred miles of all those places. Um, and he starts buying up distilleries. Yeah. 
and he starts buying up, you know, he starts starting his own pharmacy companies. Because, and we should remind people, because there was, you could you could actually buy whiskey for medicinal purposes. Exactly. That's that's the main way people got it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> legally, I Legal, should say. Legally, right. legally, yeah. Uh, so he's doing this kind of legal operation, but he's also doing a much larger underground, you know, the kind of prohibition bootlegging angle that we're more used to. And that's going through, I mean, he's producing whiskey. He is, you know, like we said, hijacking in, in his own trucks. And a lot of it is just not on the books. And he's putting a ton, a ton of liquor into the market more than anybody else. And he's putting liquor into the market that is reliable. You know, it's it's good. It's good stuff. It's stuff that was made either before Prohibition or after. You know, back in the day, you're you're risking it. It doesn't make you go blind. Right. It doesn't kill you. You're not making bathtub gin and, and killing exactly. yourself. And, you know, we talked about that. You know, you go back and listen to our first episode. We talked about how big of a problem, uh, you know, wood alcohol was really one of the things in, in these, these, you know, these different things that they would put in liquor that would end up killing the people drinking it. Remus was known to have the best whiskey. So he had the most whiskey and the best whiskey. He's able to sell it at a, at a cut rate price. Um, and he's able to, you know, he just builds a giant consumer and client base who want his stuff. He it seemed like uh, he liked the best uh, of everything. Yes, uh, I was I was reading where he had huge parties, legendary parties. legendary yeah. parties where the men it, like it was a New Year's Eve party. Yeah, then the, the nineteen twenty two New Year's Eve party. That's that's a party you wanted to be at. The men right there. got diamond stick pins, and, and the wives of the guests got. Cars. Yeah, they all got cars. Now, granted, I don't know how much a car was back then, but sure. but, but still. And we're talking, you know, that 22 New Year's Eve party that everyone talks about. You're talking a 100 different couples, you know, the right. judges, politicians, the police chief was there, yeah. Cincinnati. <laughs> Everybody. Everybody who's, you know, the upper crust of, of Southwest Ohio, Louisville. He had a big connection to Louisville as well. Um, I mean, he's Oprah before there's an Oprah. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. And 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 the the amount of money he was making, forty million dollars in three years. Yeah. In nineteen twenties. Right. And the, and and some people think even more than that. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Somewhere in that forty to sixty to seventy million dollar range in three years of bootlegging, and that's from. I mean, he starts from nothing. He's a he's an attorney in Chicago and. He moves to Cincinnati in 1920 and just starts, you know, cranking out money and, and just builds a, an empire. So, is does he continue to to be for appearances a lawyer or does not he, at all? Not at all. He just he, is, he just becomes a businessman. He is open about everybody knows what George Remus does. George Remus is in the bootlegging game, um, and back then you these gangsters were not the kind of like the ones that we're used to now um these guys like capone they were in the news they liked it you know and people and people liked them they were celebrities they were celebrities and, and because they were bringing they were bringing the party you know and you couldn't get booze without these people people didn't see them as criminals it's only later in prohibition when when capone and johnny torrio and these new york guys start piling up the bodies that wasn't really remus's game remus was a businessman who was bringing you know bourbon to the streets of, of your town, and not in trying not hurting anybody in theory? Now, granted, people got hurt all over. Supply and demand. Auxiliary, yeah, exactly. People wanted whiskey, he got him whiskey. Let's pause for a moment as you finish that first glass. I like this whiskey. By this way. is actually this is good. So yeah, you uh, you mentioned that it, it had a little bit of a spice to it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the, probably the cinnamon that you're picking up on there. Yeah, I like it. There's uh, hints of vanilla and caramel. I, I mentioned it; it's got a it's a, it's got a high rye content, uh, but uh, and it's aged at least four years, so it's it's got a little bit of a little bit of age to it. Uh, it's got nice color. It's got. I assume that's a picture of him. It is. Yeah, that's a pretty yeah. famous picture mm-hmm. of Remus right there. Uh, it's actually him getting into a car, uh, and maybe it was outside of court. I, I don't know exactly when it was, but. Like I said, he was definitely in the press. Um, and they called him king of the bootleggers. And, and I look at the back of the bottle. It says, how will my headstone read? I suppose it will be king of the bootleggers, George Remus, circa 1920. So he kind of kind of named himself yeah. king of the bootleggers, but appropriately so. He did. And and like I said, you know, he moves to Cincinnati for these logistical and geographical reasons. But he, he also moves there, and he's allowed to be kind of out in the open. Cincinnati's got a really corrupt city government. 
uh, whether it's the police, whether it's the politicians. Um, and it's a place that Remus knows from his connections that he can operate. Um, and it's, you know, the Cox regime is kind of what it was. The boss Cox was the uh, you know, kind of like boss tweed in New York. But Cincinnati was a city that did not adhere to prohibition. So many immigrants down there, so many German immigrants who think it's nonsense that the government is saying that we can't drink alcohol. So they just don't pay attention to it. And there are bars and there are speakeasies in Cincinnati for as far as the eye can see. Um, and, and, no, and nobody's doing anything. About and nobody's it. doing anything about it. And, th- and that's, you know, and Remus is helping that by greasing everybody's hands. I mean, I mean, at some point, though, when when they really started to crack down, did, well, did they just stay away from Cincinnati as far as as far as the the feds? Yeah. I know? mean, the way you got to look at it is the federal government has a couple thousand prohibition agents. OK, to, and prohibitions is rampant. You know, or I'm sorry. Bootlegging's rampant as far as Seattle, Los right. Angeles, San Francisco. They got the entire country to cover with a couple thousand uh, government workers. So lack of manpower. Lack of manpower, and you know this was a decision that then falls on these local police, uh, Cincinnati police, and they just don't want to enforce it. They don't have extra manpower. They don't believe that the they didn't create the law. It's a federal law, right? Um, and so that's how people got away with it. Is that a lot of times it came down to your local police officer. You didn't have a federal uh, you know, prohibition agent knocking down your door unless things got really hot. And those guys, in most cases, could be bought off as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the local officials, you know, Remus gives out, it said, more than $2 million, 1920s dollars in, in bribes. Um, and he was good for it, you know. So he, and that goes all the way up to the Justice Department in Washington, all the way down to the, you know, the lowly Cincinnati beat cop. Uh, let me get into a couple things of him personally. He was uh, married. Three times. Correct. Left his first wife for his secretary, Augusta Augusta Imogene, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, Imogene, sure. Yeah. And then he married another secretary in his later years. So it was all about the secretary. So being a secretary for a bootlegger was was the way to go. That's the way to do it, yeah. Okay. (laughs) If if you were in the 1920s. I think a lot of times you see that secretary didn't always mean secretary in olden times. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found fascinating about his first wife and the daughter that they had was that they were taking notes of meetings. No, <laughs> his daughter uh, from the first marriage was a, a silent film actress. She was. She was the first uh, Dorothy Gale. Exactly. She's the first Dorothy from the first uh, Wizard of Oz. Nineteen ten silent version of the film. I, I was I was fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I did not even know, and, and we make films we i didn't know there was a silent version of, of i did not either I was, yeah, I was surprised by that at, at 1910 but she was the first dorothy gale yeah from his first marriage rom romala romala yeah romala yeah yeah interesting so he leaves her and then he marries he leaves he meets emma jean augusta emma jean holmes uh who had also been previously married she's much younger um as most second wives tend to be and he he meets her as she's a deli girl. She works at his deli, um, and he starts a relationship with her. He's paying for you know her housing. She's got a young child, um, and eventually he starts. She starts working for him, uh, and eventually when he moves, he marries her in Newport, Kentucky, in 1920. Uh, Newport, Kentucky is kind of like the Reno of its time, okay. um, where you could wow. get divorced and and get remarried there without some of the same time restrictions and and other restrictions that were on divorce. So he changes his entire life when he moves from Chicago to Cincinnati. He has a new wife, a new you know a new kid that he's raising, and, and an entire new profession. Mm-hmm. So he marries her, and uh, uh, also socially speaking, uh, and tell me about this: Is it true that uh, George Remus is the basis for Jay Gatsby in Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby? He is so. The book we all had to read in in, in high school. It's which a great book. Going back, you know, when I read it, it was kind of a drag in high school. But I've read it since, and it's a fantastic. It's, it's a fascinating. It's read. a great. Did they know each other? Did they fit, did. So did they cross paths? They met in Louisville. Uh, like we talked about, he goes to Louisville a lot. There's a place called the Sealbach Hotel. It's still there. It's right by you know they have a place. Fourth Street Live is kind of their main entertainment area in Louisville. Um, it's a few blocks from there. It's an old hotel, still operates the Sealbach. But that was a place where. All kinds of underworld gangsters. Capone had a, his own kind of table there, where he put a mirror in so he could see, you know, behind his back. Sure. Uh, and that's still there. 
Uh, Fitzgerald is in Louisville, stationed. He's in, he's in the army at that point, and there's a there's a fort uh, on the outskirts of Louisville. He's an aspiring writer, and he meets Remus, who's in Louisville all the time because he's in the Bourbon game. Um, and Louisville's just you know so connected and still is to, to you know to rye whiskeys and all, and all sure. kinds of uh, brown liquors. Um, and so they meet there, and, and they know each other for years. There's a a famous picture of Capone and Remus and Fitzgerald and the mayor of, of Louisville and the police chief uh, that used to hang behind the bar at the Seelbach Hotel. Um, oh, very cool. And so they and, and there's so many similarities between Remus and, and Jay Gatsby. If now, is can. Remus aware when 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 the Great Gatsby comes out as a as a, as a book? Is Remus aware that there's no there's that, really no uh, that Fitzgerald has there's no record that he that he knew or talked about it. it. Yeah. Uh, that book also wasn't, you know, immediately super no, popular. No, not really. Um, not, not. And also, you know, when that book comes out, Remus is is fighting, you know, a, a legal battle and, and other things. He's he's just out of jail. Um, but I have nothing that shows that he knew that or that him and Fitzgerald really kept up a relationship after everything kind of went bad for for Remus. So Remus not a big reader. Uh, he was actually he was, <laughs> was a, he? he was a very, I mean he was a voracious reader um, especially if he was in jail yeah <laughs> he, I mean, yeah. He I mean he's not, is he reading the great Gatsby going hey wait, wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> but you know him and Jay they're both uh, they're both you know bootleggers and there's all kinds of different similarities between them and their rise to, to power and how they made their money and also you know they both are kind of aspiring to be in that upper crust you know aspiring even though they're new money. They're trying to be old money, which is you know one of the big themes in in, in the Great Gatsby, um, and they're both you know crossed by a woman, which is kind of something that you know maybe happens in the book before it happens to Remus. And it was written before, um, but they both meet a pretty similar end. Interesting that when you look when you look back on the the history of our more infamous gangsters in life, a lot of their downfall. Is, 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 is a woman. Yeah, it is. It is a woman. And you think about history, not to go off page here, you think about <laughs> history in general. I mean, civilizations, my friends, decimated and ruined, you know, and be, because of a woman. Helen of Troy. I mean, just, just one example. Yeah. I mean, you think about, we still love them. And 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 but that's just uh, you know, never underestimate the power <laughs> and the influence <laughs> of a woman. I think this we're feeling a, that. Every, this every, is a lesson. Yeah, I have learned. Women. Yeah, we I have it. learned. Yeah, <laughs> Remus, being what I consider to be the very intelligent, smart man. Like I said earlier, he memorizes the Volstead Act. Seventy-six uh, paragraphs in that Volstead Act. Yeah, he, he and just the Volstead Act was was the law that was you know kind of right. codified the Eighteenth Amendment. So it's that's Volstead's just the name of the the congressman who slapped his name on it. So where does he slip up? Is it is it just is is it a classic case of you become so big so powerful that you be, you think that you're invincible? Certainly that um, on some level, or did he actually you know just just start? Fucking up. He what what happens is he does become so big that he can't be ignored. Um, he's so out in the open about it that there there are people in the Justice Department and Prohibition agents who are not on the take. Uh, there's a woman, he's an assistant attorney general named Mabel Walker Wildebrandt, a uh, California lawyer who sets her sights on Remus. Um, his idea, he thought he was invincible because he starts working with the uh, an assistant, basically a a gopher for the attorney general. The attorney general was a was just a private attorney in Washington Courthouse, Ohio, uh, a guy named Harry Doherty. And Doherty was from Washington Courthouse here in Central Ohio. He befriends Warren G. Harding years before he runs I, he, he runs Harding's campaign in 1920, um, and he's rewarded as the attorney general. This guy had no business being the attorney general, and I, I think Harding's an underrated president because he's a much maligned president. But his biggest mistake, his cabinet was mostly full of his friends. Um, and people, you know, his brother-in-law was the head of the, you know, the Veterans Affairs Department, that kind of stuff. Let me let me let me pause there and yeah. and, and and divert just a little bit in respects to, to President Harding, because um, you're right. A much maligned president, you know, um, he in, in, in some of the films that I've seen and in, 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 in TV shows, um, they it seemed like 
the people in that game, the bootlegging game, and 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 the criminals wanted Harding. I mean, so tell me about you know the the like the high level bribing, for lack right. of a better word, were they bribing Harding? I mean, or there or there are the people surrounding. I think Harding. Harding, you know, Harding gets this. He was a beloved president at the time. Uh, he had really high approval ratings. The country is just out of World War One, and he promises a return to normalcy, is what he calls it. And it's kind of like a – they didn't know if that was a word. You remember like when George W. Bush had the word strategery? Yeah. His his campaign was was, was based around <laughs> normalcy. Um, and he's a, he's a dark horse candidate who basically gets picked at the Republican convention in 1920 in a smoke-filled room. He's the original smoke-filled room candidate. His problem is he owes so many people – to favors? get to get to get yeah to, favors to get that nomination. Um, now he's not on the take at all. His problem again is people like Harry Doherty, some of his other uh, cabinet members who are put in these positions of power, who are n- unscrupulous people. So mm-hmm. there's a guy named Jess Smith uh, who's an assistant to Doherty, and he really becomes the go-between. Another Washington Courthouse, Ohio. Uh, Man who becomes the go-between between Remus and the Justice Department. Let me let me go back to uh, you know uh, the female aspect of it. Didn't Harding also have some? Oh yeah, female uh, issues as we, well. We could talk Harding all day. Maybe that's one we can <laughs> think about next time. Uh, you know, I'm working on as part of this Ohio uh, history connection. We are working on a presidential library for for Harding. He's from Marion, Ohio, just up the road here, uh, about 45 minutes north of Columbus. Um, and we're, it's 2020 is going to be his centennial of his election. And so we are working on a new presidential library. We're raising all kinds of money, a whole new build at, at his house in Marion. I think he was a great president, but the people around him, uh, after he died in these investigations, Teapot Dome is really the one that people right. know. Um, but there's all kinds of stuff. The, the Veterans Affairs Department. Teapot uh, Dome goes back to Washington Courthouse, does it not? It, a little bit. Teapot Dome is an interior department issue right. where they basically start selling government land that they knew had oil to the lowest bidder their friends to then develop and basically almost like national park land that they start drilling on illegally um and then that money from the oil is getting kicked back to those people in power gotcha um again i'm not gonna sit here and say harding knew anything about this he he may have found out about some of it um later he dies in office when really some of the stuff starts coming to light but it's really his Justice Department, Harry Doherty, and his what I call his bag man, uh, Jess Smith, who really start working with Remus. They promise Remus, and we get back to why he thought he was invincible. Yeah. They promise him that he will not be prosecuted. Uh, if you pay me $50,000, he says their first meeting, uh, you pay me $50,000, I can promise you won't be prosecuted. If prosecuted, I can promise you won't actually ever serve a day in jail. Uh, and he pays Jess Smith $50,000 the first time they meet. They meet multiple other times. He's getting these withdrawal receipts you know you got to get government withdrawal receipts to pull some of this whiskey out even though he owns it he can't move it without these withdrawal receipts so he needs the justice department not just for the protection so he is bribing them he is falsifying these withdrawal receipts or basically almost making copies of them um and he's giving the justice department upwards of you know five hundred thousand dollars some people have said so what gets him busted what gets him busted is a a guy gets busted in Indiana, um, and a guy gives him up in Indiana, and it's a it's a it's a pretty big liquor bust at the time, and he says I can take you to where all this came from. He, you know he he rolls on him, and it's actually an Illinois and an Indiana prohibition agents come to Cincinnati, and there's a place called Death Valley was his farm where he kept all this booze, armed guards uh, just outside of Cincinnati. So. The guy says, I can take you to Death Valley and I can show you where all this whiskey that you see on the streets is coming from. Um, these Indiana you know, prohibition agents and Illinois prohibition agents can't go into Ohio and bust him. So they, they start leaning on Cincinnati's you know, head of prohibition, and that guy's completely on the take. They lock him in a room. They say, we're not going to let you out. We're going to arrest you for this and this and this if you don't help us bust Remus. Um, and eventually he gives in, and they go and they bust his farm, Death Valley. And that's when it all starts to unravel for him. And everybody starts rolling on him. Um, mm. and, and that's how it goes. So he got too big, thought that he was protected from his bribes. The problem is, the same time this is happening, his guy, his connection, Jess Smith, 
um, is having some health problems. There's some other personal issues in his life, uh, and things are starting to get a little hot at the Justice Department for other reasons, not just Remus, um, that you know these whispers of corruption in, in congressional hearings are called, and Jeff Smith ends up killing himself. Um, wow. And just like that, uh, his get-out-of-jail-free card is, is lying dead in a hotel. It's gone. And there's people who say that Jeff Smith was, was killed, there's people who say, I've never found anything about that. It, he had some major issues, um, and he had a lot of stress in his life, and, and I think it is an actual suicide. But either way, for Remus, now he's left exposed. Okay, so um, so he goes to jail. He goes to trial, and he's not actually found guilty of, of prohibition violations. Just like Al Capone and a lot of these gangsters, he's found guilty of tax evasion. And he's found guilt. Well, he's charged and, and found guilty of uh, of bribing public officials. Is this the case where the prosecutor was Charles Phelps Taft, or is that that's different? in his that's in his criminal trial later? His, criminal his trial. Taft's okay, okay. Son. This was uh, that Mabel Walker Willebrand okay. who we talked about. You know, kind of the the Which, ultimate buzzkill. Ultimate, yeah. And and what a powerful woman she was. In that, in, that, in, that to that be particular time to be a woman in that much power was rare. Um, and honestly, she was put in that office because women helped get Harding elected. Um, and so he's looking for someone that he can put in a number of different positions. There's people within the party. But she really gets this job out of you know, Los Angeles. She's, a, she's a, an L.A. district attorney. Um, she gets this job because she's a woman. Um, and women had really helped Harding win a landslide in 1920. He, he won uh, by historically large margins in that election and that's the first election that women can vote help me clear up some of the progression of this is when so so he goes to jail goes to jail in atlanta and while he's in jail is this is this the time where he his cellmate is franklin dodge for a part of the time yeah that would be 19 so think about timeline wise he leaves law prohibition starts about the same time 1920 1925 is when he goes to jail. And is Franklin Dodge his cellmate at that point? Franklin, who's not really a cellmate. He's a he's a, he's a yeah he's a jailhouse snitch that the prohibition agents have put in his cell. right right. Um, and so he didn't work for the FBI per, per it, se. It's the Bureau of Investigation at that time. And so we, he did. Yeah, he's not yeah. in any trouble. He's there acting like he's an inmate. He's gathering information. He works with Mabel Walker Willebrand. And instead of doing that investigation, he was really down there. The, you know, a lot of my research to make sure that he wasn't doing anything in jail. This jail had all the prohibition bigwigs, the, the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Okay, so that brings me to my to my next uh, questions here. While he's in jail, and he actually confesses or 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 chats with with Dodge that while he's in jail, his wife, Imogene. Is is running things? He kind of gives a blueprint of yeah, what, what's going on. What's going on now? It, it, the operation is certainly crippled. It's certainly uh, not nearly as you know a powerful or, an organization. A lot of people have been rounded up. But in his things ring. are still clicking things on still some happening. level, and he still has an incredible amount of personal wealth, hidden money, houses, cars, all these things, and all this stuff is basically a power of attorney is given over to his wife, Imogene. Right. Um, so he tells Dodge all this, all this, all this stuff. Yeah. And Dodge, as opposed to going back to his current employers and saying, here's what's happening, has an affair with his wife. It's said that they they definitely, I believe they had an affair for sure. They're together. They're together. And he basically talks Imogene, and it's not right away. I mean, Imogene sticks by him uh, through a good part of this jail sentence. But at some point in 1926, 1927, her and Dodge become involved, and they start looting his empire. Right. And selling off ever they sell off his dog. Uh, his dog was actually his dog. His dog. They sold off his dog. What his, kind of woman does what, that? What? 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 I mean, you know, go ahead and sell the booze and 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 and, and, and everything else. The man's dog. The man's best Who, friend. They somebody wanted Remus's dog. Well, Remus's dog. First of all, let's show you how how connected Remus was. His dog was even kind of famous. His dog was the brother of Laddie Boy, who was President Harding's dog. Oh, wow. Okay. His dog was brothers with Harding's so, dog, so, Laddie Boy. It's, it's, my wife and I, <laughs> I call her Miss, I try to work her into at least one show I do. do my wife and one. I wanted to 
we, we got a, we have a new dog with this dog Moby. He's a rescue. That was his name when we got him. Good for you for for adopting a rescue. He's a, he's a he's a lab half lab half retriever, and he's just the great American dog. Um, <laughs> and she's a big dog person. I've never owned a dog. You know, I'm I'm in this whole new dog world that you know I never knew existed. It's an interesting world. It my is. Friend. And uh, we decided that well, we didn't decide. I think we'd had a few drinks and thought it'd be funny <laughs> if we wrote a book about we should write a book about presidential dogs. And she comes up with this great name. We're going to call it First Dogs. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then we Googled it, and it's already been done. It's already a thing. The First Dogs is already a uh, book. All right. Well, so we it, gave up the dream. It was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and it was done sometime in the 90s. Okay, what so, about uh, Remus's dog? There's yeah, a book. Just, There's uh, a book. So, uh, so yeah, they, they hook up. They conspire. They start selling off, and, and eventually Remus gets out. Remus gets out in 27, goes back to Cincinnati, and he had – you know, he'd only really heard rumors that all this was happening. Um, they're selling off his pharmacies. They're selling off his distilleries. Right. Um, and he's still in jail. And he gets back to the house, and that mansion of his on Hermosa Avenue in Price Hill, Cincinnati, is stripped bare. There's nothing there but the floors. Um, and it's, you know, he says that he fell on the ground and started crying. And his, he hits rock <laughs> bottom at that point. You'd think he'd be rock bottom in jail. It's rock bottom right, when he gets out. Right, when he gets out, sure. Yeah. And sees that everything that he thought was going to stay intact on some level is is not correct he's served with divorce papers you know right as he's getting out of jail all right so then the next the next step is he's pissed <laughs> he's very pissed he's and pissed. so you know they're having almost like garage sales and, and, and so people know uh you know some of the people that i met with i went to the price hill historical society to do the interview we did the interviews for the episode in cincinnati and some of the guys that I interviewed in a couple authors, a couple uh, females who wrote a book about Remus, um, they ha- they knew you know whether it was their in laws, they had pieces of furniture from the forty you know from the twenties and thirties that was actually you know passed down. It was from Remus's house. It was from the Remus gar- you know garage sale from the you know, and so <laughs> the Remus garage the, sale. the famous Remus garage sale with the, <laughs> the estate sale yeah they're selling a the dog. I mean you're gonna remember that one <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But he knew about this. The city knew about it. Um, and so he is beyond pissed. And, and this is a, a period of time where men still very much held a lot of the power, obviously, or slash all of the power. Um, and so this it's on the morning in October 1927 on the way to his divorce proceedings that he sees his wife uh, in a car and, and, and he has her run off the road. Um, and so we can talk. I mean, this is really... It takes a, 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 a you know a change here for Remus, but he he's not somebody who is really inherently violent. He had a lot of henchmen, yeah. Um, you but, know, but in this not particular someone case, that, that's really documented to have killed people before. Um, to you know, really to be a really violent person, and in this case, he's in Eden Park. He runs her off the road the morning that they're going to go do their divorce hearing, and in broad daylight in in Cincinnati, he shoots his wife right in the stomach, and she dies. Yeah. Kills her. Kills her. Yeah. Energy. So now so now he's going to jail. Now he's being tried for murder. He he the gun was never found. Um the gun well, there's some theories about the gun we don't need to get into, but he goes and turns himself in. Um and says Is this I should, the case where Taft is involved? And this is where Charles this is where, Taft, this is where yeah. Taft is involved, who is the son of uh, the the Chief Justice and then former president. William Taft. Yeah, William Howard Taft is the sitting yeah. Chief Justice of the, the Supreme time. Court at the time. Yeah. So and now let's go. Let's 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 go full circle. Remus uh, represents himself. He does, and so and goes with. He goes with the insanity. It plea. Insanity plea. The temporary insanity. They called it back then. They called it transitory insanity. It, it, it was something that he learned about in that 1913 trial mm-hmm. of, of William Ellis. Uh, the Cincinnati businessman who killed his wife, and it fails in that instance. Um, he represents himself. He does have co-counsel, um, but he does still represent himself in his own capital murder case, which I do not advise. Well, not, yeah, as an attorney, you know, <laughs> the, the, what, what was the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote? Uh, yeah, a person who uh, how was it, has a fool for a client, a person who represents themselves has, has a, a fool. fool for a client, yeah. yeah. So, but in that case, but, okay, he wins. Yeah, this is this is the trial of the century in, in its time. Um, that's that term is thrown a lot, around a lot. You see it all the time. Um, it's the OJ, <laughs> it, it, but it really is. You know, it's sixty-eight years before OJ. But the outrage 
at his acquittal is really similar to that. And, and it's, you know, a lot of the books I read said the same thing. People cannot believe that he's found not guilty um, for a murder of his wife that people witnessed. Witnessed, saw. That he admitted to. And he's found not guilty. So Because of... And so, the, so you're telling me that the jury buys the temporary insanity the jury, plea? The jury comes back in 19 minutes. So... All right. So I always get this mixed up. If a jury comes back quick, what does that mean? I had that instance today. So today, just before I got here, I had a trial with our friend Mike Morocco. It's my co-counsel. All right. And it was a an OVI trial in, in Delaware. And the jury didn't come back for three hours. And, it, and, and so normally when a jury comes back that quick, it, it doesn't necessarily mean guilty or innocent. You, you can kind of tell by the trial. It's going to be whatever you kind of felt the result so was going to be. If a jury's out for a long time, what, is, what does the attorney feel? Is I, was, I felt a lot of nerves today, and I've been in this situation before, but I did feel a lot of nerves today. Today, our client was found not guilty, which was awesome. Uh, it was a great moment. But when they stay out for that long, that means that there's a major difference of opinion in right. the deliberations. Okay. So in, in Ohio, in a municipal court in Ohio, it's eight jurors, and they all have to agree, or it's a hung jury. They all have to agree, and they all have to sign their name to that verdict. Um, and so today we got eight not guilty pleas, or not guilty findings, but I'll tell you what, the jury being out for three hours in a... In a you thought you were screwed. Well, we just didn't know, you know, and that's the worst feeling. But you say you didn't know, but... In your heart, did you think it's taken this long? Or we we felt better that it took longer. You honestly. felt better that it took longer. We did, yeah. Um, and in this case, it's it's so short. They say nineteen minutes. Really, it was more like an hour and a half. But an hour of that was spent with them going to lunch. <laughs> so the first the, things the first. closing arguments ended, <laughs> and it was right around eleven thirty. <laughs> this is December. It's right right before Christmas in nineteen twenty seven. I don't want to really cast my vote yet. I'd like to have a sandwich first, and then after you never do not deliberate full, on an empty stomach. After a full stomach, I think I'd be able to fairly deliberate on the fate of this man. We'd have to go back into court. And, you know. <laughs> well, tonight in our verdict tonight, um, you know, we were getting pretty close to dinner time, so we were we thought they might. Come Come back with a hey, we need to order some pizzas or, or type of thing, but they did. They they actually went to lunch. And so when they you came, could have you could have called me and said I can't make it. It tonight. was very. It, it was, was actually looking like I wasn't going right. to be able to make it tonight. Um, it was get it was getting a little dicey there. Um, they come back and it's after that lunch that they come back 19 minutes later, and the courtroom erupts and, and it really erupts with Remus has a lot of supporters. There, people are are celebrating. Uh, he's he's hugging the jurors. It, it's a much different time, you know. In, in, in the courtroom, he screams, American justice, you know, I thank you, he says, uh, is what he's quoted as saying. And he starts, I mean, these jurors are coming up to him after, and they're hugging, and they're crying. Um, but the country is outraged by the fact that he's found not guilty. And it comes with a twist. It's not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and in our episode, you know, we talk about he's actually sent to Lima, Ohio, to the, you know, that's where the asylum was. Um and a guy I was interviewing for our third episode, uh, a lawyer up in, in Cleveland, he's asking me, well, what are you doing in some of the other episodes on? I said, well, we're doing one on George Remus right now. And he says, my grandpa represented George Remus. And it turns out oh, this guy's wow. from Lima. Wow. His grandpa is the one who got Remus out of the... So that turned in with him. He, now he's on our got Remus Got him out episode. of the asylum? He got him out of the asylum. Remus is out in six months. And the way that he does it is he uses those same witnesses that said he wasn't insane that the state put up in the trial. He then he then turns them to <laughs> represent him in Lima to say again that so he's not insane. So after the verdict comes out that you're he, he's off the hook. He's off the hook, but he's sent to an insane yes, asylum. But, in, he's, in, but then he's then they flip it. He's six, six so somewhere between get, six and eight months. Because how long was free. he? Do you know how long he was originally supposed to be in Lima? It was it was at least for a long. I think it was for a long time. I think it was for at least. And he's like, out in six months. He's out in six months. Um, and and he's out because he basically completely flips the argument. And says no, I'm not insane. Here's a bunch of people saying I'm not insane. <laughs> um, and so I was insane it. then, but no, not now. And so it really did have that kind of OJ reaction from the public wow. that that he was able wow. to. And there's a lot of similarities in the trial. It's another almost celebrity who's killed his wife, um, and allegedly, allegedly. nice, allegedly, nice. <laughs> allegedly. But the country had that same reaction. And, and you know, I talked to Jim Jim Robinout, the the great historian and lawyer up in Cleveland, whose grandpa represented Remus, 
And he tells me that his mom, uh, you know, the, the daughter of the attorney, she would walk to school with a sheriff escorting her for a couple of months because there were all kinds of death threats against his father's family for wow. getting Remus out um, and, and getting a convicted, what they thought, a, a, you know, a, a killer back on the streets. That's amazing. All right, so now he's out. He's out of the asylum. He's out. So you know. So now what does he do? F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of says there's no second acts in, in American lives. That's, that's his famous quote. It's not from, from Gatsby, but that's his, you know, the, we don't have a second act in our life. Um, I totally re- disagree with that. Well, he's, that's, what, that's what Fitzgerald said. And really, this is kind of his third act. I mean, he's been, yeah. he's been a lawyer, pharmacist, married with a kid, changes completely to a second act of the king of the bootleggers. Um, you know, has this, builds this gigantic criminal empire, kills his wife, beats the rap after you know after the trial, um, and starts a third act where he was a lot quieter. Um, he he gets what, into, is, what does he have now? I mean, after, he's got the house. He's, he's that's, really, it. that's really it. So his his empire is gone. It's all gone. It's it, all gone. His money. His money is mostly gone. Does he have um, money of any kind? He does money that's on the books. Not really. He's got the house, which he ultimately sells. Um, he marries a third time um, to uh, his new secretary, Blanche. Blanche uh, Watson, I think, was her name. Yeah, and she helped him through the trial Blanche. and all. I love yeah. the name Blanche. Yeah, Blanche is a real. Uh, Who was also supposedly a secretary. Right, it's also a secretary. <laughs> um, and he marries Blanche Watson, and he's in the real estate game. Uh, and one of the things he starts with was by selling his property and dividing it up. Um, and he gets in the real estate and really lives more in the Newport, Covington, mm-hmm. Kentucky area. Um, but that's his third act. I mean, he's only in his, he's probably 53 when he uh, when he's released from jail. And he lives he lives into the 1950s. Yeah, he, I think he died. Actually, I think he died in 1950. Yeah, 50, yeah, 52, something like something, that. Right around there. Mm-hmm. So at what age, how long did he live? I would him? say that he was in his early 80s, late 70s. Oh, so wow. he lived for another so, 25 years. Um, and did he live well? He he lived fine. He, okay. he, he I was, mean, you're talking about a guy who, at, at the height of his... Fame and success made forty million dollars in three years. Yeah, he had three thousand employees. Which in, in today's money, would be I, I, ten, I, times ten. I, 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 I don't know. It's, you a, know, it's astronomical. It'd, it'd be yeah. He'd be a billionaire. Yeah, close to it. So he lives now. He's he gets you know. If you want to talk about the rest of his life, it's not as exciting. Really into the ponies though. It lives in Kentucky. Oh, sure. And, well, well, you know. He's retired at this point, Dino. He's really he's lived two full lives at this point. Um, That's and, what I'm going to do. I'm going to start getting into the ponies. And he's he's buried. I'm semi-retired. He, I'm going to get into the horses. The ponies. <laughs> I'm going to get into the ponies. <laughs> After this, I'm going to Scioto Downs. He's buried. <laughs> he's buried with the with the Watson family, Blanche's family, on a uh, you know in a, in a uh, cemetery in Kentucky. He's wow. still there today. So what are your feelings about the man? Um, I, I mean, love prohibition. I think it's I, I'm a liquor attorney. We've talked about this. So right. my entire job is thanks to, you know, I know all the liquor laws in Ohio and it's the liquor laws are so complicated because of prohibition when they repeal, still still to this day. I mean, you've so met, you day. had your episode with with uh, Kenepa with the superintendent, yeah. which is a great episode. Thank you. Um, I've had multiple friends ask me if I've listened to that one. Um, but yeah, they're very complicated laws in, in the state. I mean, there's, you know, there's a place right down the street here that we didn't have Sunday sales right on the corner there, the uh, Little Eater right by the Hot Chicken. You know, yeah. even in Clintonville today, you can't sell on Sundays um, in a lot of places. So there's all these different complicated, what I think are now silly, outdated laws, but they all spring from when Prohibition ended. Basically, you had to vote yourself wet. Things weren't just wet again. Every, the, everyone was dry, and you had to slowly wet up this your neighborhood. And as we discussed in the very first episode with you back in prohibition it all started in westerville it did yeah so that's <laughs> yeah westerville's the dry capital of the yeah. world yeah and but now westerville's wet westerville but didn't become wet until the you know 2005 so recently yeah, yeah i mean it's a fairly recently. now there's a bunch of great bars and restaurants in, in uptown westerville but wow so once again i go back to that question you know your your impression of of, of george remus as as the man and the entrepreneur that he was back then. And I, and I go back to what I first said in the opening of this podcast. You know, if I, I asked you earlier, if you could live in that era, would you have wanted to be a lawyer? You said no. But if you lived in that era, 
And I know you. I know you. you know, I, I'm not a criminal genius. I mean, you're not a. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> what I respect about Remus is the guy had no business being in this gangster world, and he becomes the most powerful bootlegger in the country. Right, and that's a testament to without being a gangster. Yeah, I mean, a, sure, he was a gangster, but yeah, but he really is. He's kind of the Walter White um of his time, but he was just hardworking and genius to do rise to the top of his profession whether that's in the law or in bootlegging, it's really impressive. So I respect the hell out of him. He's his game. Um, I don't want to glorify criminals. No, no, but, no, no, no. I don't, I'm not but saying I that. But I really respect what he did. And he's, I think, one of the most famous Ohio you know, criminals of all time. Yeah. For yeah. sure. I mean, aside from that whole allegedly you know, killing the wife in broad daylight, yeah. did he, we don't know that he, he probably never pulled another trigger. We we don't know, we but don't know he, that he wasn't. Sure, but that wasn't his that reputation. Wasn't, that wasn't his. That wasn't his thing. Yeah. You know, another thing, you know, you talk about, you know, and you see in Boardwalk Empire, he's a character in Boardwalk Empire, which is you know a fun show, and they have him always talking in the third person. I've really my research hasn't really showed that that was an actual thing. What that stems from is from that murder trial. He represents himself, and the judge says, you know, after we can't do this, and you know, you can't represent yourself. You have an attorney. We won't do it. He argues. If I'm able to separate myself from Remus the client and Remus the lawyer. So when he's lawyering his own murder trial, he's pointing to this empty chair saying, my client, George Remus, did this, did, did you know, my client, George Remus. That's where that third person comes from is from that trial. People, that's, it gets publicized. You know, everyone's at this trial. New York mm-hmm. Times, Tribune, uh, you know, Plain Dealer, everyone's covering this. It's, it's the trial of the century in 1927. But that's where that third person comes from, is him referring to himself during the trial as Remus. Remus wouldn't do that. Remus, Re- yeah, exactly. Remus wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they, and, they do, and they do play that up a lot in the uh, HBO series Boardwalk Empire. And that's something that's followed around even before Boardwalk Empire, but it really, from my research, stems from that, that murder trial. Interesting. Do you enjoy being a lawyer as we speak? I, I, I mean, I love days like today when you get a not yeah, guilty, when you get a jury guilty. verdict. That's great. Yeah. It's exhilarating. Is this yeah. something you always wanted to do? Was was law your first pursuit? No, uh, my I didn't have a pursuit. Uh, I was just kind of just going with the flow. My family was mostly attorneys, uh-huh. um, and because your brother's an attorney, my brother was in law school and I actually went to the same law school. I was a year behind him, uh, not in age, but in school. And I just went to his same law school he was going to because it was just the next thing. I, right. call, I called law you could school. You those books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got those books. Uh, that's good, Hansberry. That's good. <laughs> Every <laughs> once in a while. It's true. Gets, it's, it's, it hurts one. because it's he true. Gets, he gets um, I'm done. Yeah. But you know, I was not – I wasn't enthralled with the, with the law. Really? And it wasn't really until I became a lawyer. Um, I called law school 17th grade, 18th grade. <laughs> and when I graduated, I graduated from 19th grade. Um, and school, you know, came pretty easily to me. Uh, but law school is is very difficult. You know, you're a good lawyer. Uh, I'm a, a you're a good lawyer. learning to be a lawyer. Yeah, learning. So you still think you have a lot to be a lot to learn. Yeah, well, it was with Mer- Mike Morocco, our friend today, was really did all the heavy lifting. Uh-huh. Um, and you learn from people like that, John Saya, who's been on the show. Right. Um, you know, these are guys who have been honing their craft for thirty years. Um, I'm only been in the game for ten. Um, but they but they inspire all, you to become a better attorney. But I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. In the ten years you've been an attorney, you you've made a nice reputation for yourself. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot you know it's criminal. We do a lot of criminal work when it comes to drunk smart. driving. I think it's more my my personal my personality. I guess I should say I, I'm able to play the game. All right. Let me let me just ask: How does personality play into the law? Well, it's everything's relationships, Dino. It's you, you of all people, you know, should know that. Um, and, you know, you need to know not just the law, and, but you need to know the people across the table for you. You need to know the prosecutor. Right. You need to know the judges, what they like, what they don't like. Um, you know, they always say that a good lawyer, you know, knows the law, but a great lawyer knows the judge. Um, it's not as simple or as you know as tasteful as that, but I don't think so. But there is in all jokes, there's some truth. You got to know who you're dealing with, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I like to think of myself as a as good study of, of people. So, and, and I believe once again, I go back 
you should listen to the very first podcast about prohibition because it's a great podcast that goes way back into the whiskey business archives when we first started. Yeah, it's like and 2016. Alex, yeah, when Alex was our, one of our first guests. But, on iTunes or whiskeybusinessshow.com. Thank you. Thank you. You're going to recite all that before we, okay. we leave yeah, just yeah, to remind yeah. people. Rate but, and review. But, um, but, 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 but if you, if you were in the 1920s, you know, when I, I, I go back to that original what era would you like to have lived in? Would you have liked to have lived in the 1920s? Would you have liked to have been part of that world? What I like about the 20s is I, I like old I like old things. I'm, you know, I like history. Okay, yeah. so I really love the history from the Civil War up until World War World War One, 1920s Prohibition. What I like about the 20s is it's old enough, but it's still I'm able to drive a car. Right. I'm able to do. I'm there's radio. I'm able to make a phone call. Um, I'm not one of those people who would have loved to live, you know, in the 1840s. Um, it would have been simpler, but it would have been hard as hell. Right. It would have been. It's like living in New York. Like everything's so difficult. <laughs> the simplest task is in, in the 1840s. So difficult. what I like about 1920 is it's really the start of that American century. And is the start that of the, modernity. Is that, is that if you could go back to an era? I think it would be. The, would I be think the it would be the 1920s. You wouldn't be my attorney in the 40s as a as a, as a private investigator. I don't want. I don't want to deal with the Nazis. <laughs> you would. I was horribly murdered in the 1940s, according to a past I could see, life. I could see you being a 40s private dick, by the way. But yeah, so could I. Your hats. Your hats would have been amazing. I would have. You would have had a hat guy. Hats. A haberdasher, is that what they're called? A hat yeah, guy? Or, uh, uh, haberdash- I don't know what, the, what they call it. A milliner? A milliner? I don't know. Haber- I think have a haberdashery. Get on is that, a, Hansberry. Is a, is a, yeah. But no, I would now see. Uh, well, I'm a little sad now because I would have liked to think if you, would, I wish you would have picked the 40s and you would have been my uh, attorney slash friend that you know, slash Nazi fighter <laughs> that would have helped me. There's too case. much turmoil you, in the 40s. You would have gotten me information that I needed that you weren't supposed to give me. The music in the 40s so much better than the 20s. The yeah. 20s is really the start of jazz. The 40s is when you're really seeing the peak really of ass. jazz. Yeah. yeah, and that would have been cool. Um, it, how about after 1945, post-war? I would have been down for it. You've been down, yeah. So I need to move my my just, uh, just, just my do late 40s, late 40s. I'll do late 40s, and then you would have been with me in the late 40s. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, we would have been a hell of a team. <laughs> <laughs> Private eye, <laughs> Private eye, and, and attorney Alex Hasty in the late 40s. Come on, like that's it. a show right there. Haberdashery. Are you looking it up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it just it looks like um, uh, men's clothing accessories. Mm. So look up, hats. What about milliner? What about milliner? S- spell it for him. M i l l n e r. Google will spell I, it for I, you. Mil- millennial. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. no we no. know what a millennial is. He's checking with to see what milliner means. <laughs> <laughs> milliner. Milliner. It's not coming up. <sighs> Old timey hat guy. All right. While he's looking that up, let me let me let me start to wrap things up. Alex Hasty. Has been our guest. His podcast, uh, Ohio v. The World, is awesome. Check it out as well. Season three, kicking off with Ohio v. The Moon. Neil Armstrong making those those first steps, and 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 and, and uh, it's a great podcast. And our Remus episode will be out by the time this drops as well. Yes. Yeah, okay. So your Remus episode will be out. It's and, episode two. Uh, yeah. Along with my Remus episode. With uh, you. Mine will be out first. Hat making or millinery yeah. is a design, manufacture, and sale of hats. I was yeah, right. Yeah, oh, Milliner. Look at you. Yeah. Makes, look. trims, or sells hats. Yeah, good job. Look yeah. at you. So if I were to get back in the PI game now, would you Would you be, you know? Oh, I, I, I have would, PI friends, yeah. I mean, that's, would that's you be my guy? Stuff. Have you thought about getting back into PI work? I, I did that for years. I haven't thought about it. I have... Are you allowed to tell people you're a private uh, investigator? Uh, well, no, no, it? I'm allowed to tell them, but I've gotten, I've gotten, let's call them requests. Sure. Yeah. Let's see. Well, I'll hire you to as do a, some, as some a consultant. digging. As a consultant. Yeah, I'm a good digger. I like this this bottle. You good. like this bottle? Yeah, yeah, our guest bottle has been the George Remus bourbon uh, from our friends at Midwest Grain Products, MGP. It's the, it's the first time they stepped out and made their own you know, they they actually got this, and they got the they got the the labeling from uh, Queen City in Cincinnati as well. So they they put it all together. And and it's good stuff. Say, is this like supposed to be his like special blend back from what that he I sold? Or you know, I was just, I was kind of asking yeah, him that. I think that they just I, put slapped his name know. on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't know the fact that you know uh, they went from they got the label, they got the the name from Queen City in Cincinnati, and so forth and so on. 
But it's good. It's good. It's 42 bucks a bottle. That's what I paid for it. And maybe you can find it for cheaper or more, depending on where you live. But uh, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's oh, a good Oh, I got you guys T-shirts. Ohio V the World T-shirts. Did you, yes. give me a, did you give me a double XL? It's I can get you a double XL. I brought you this XL. It's a large XL. I think you can do it. What do you wear? All right, then I'll XL should be fine. <laughs> a, man, a man of my carriage. You know? I got yeah. you an L. I feel like that might be a little. Oh, I, 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 a I am the same carriage as you, my friend. <laughs> yes, you uh, are. Oh, oh, you know what? You didn't get one for John Whitney. I f- kind of forgot about John. Oh, well, then I'm gonna forgot about John. the YouTube channel. I'm, you know what? I have one from before. I give it to Whitney then. I'm gonna give I gave you one already. Yeah. Uh, well, well, now Whitney's got one. It all worked now out. Whitney's got one, so I'm good. <laughs> Has it been worn? That's what he asked. <laughs> it's Dino's old one. <laughs> <laughs> it's one that I tossed aside. Um, so yeah, check out uh, Ohio v the World, your podcast, which is available everywhere. Yes. Yeah. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, you name it. You name it. You got it. Just like ours. Hansbury, tell everybody where they can get our stuff. Same thing. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. We always love that to hear from you. Um, also, Facebook, Instagram, Whiskey Business Podcast. Uh, we put a bunch of cool pictures. We'll make sure we put up a picture of this bottle of uh, Remus because there's a picture of Remus on yeah. the bottle. How'd you already get that T-shirt on? Quick. <laughs> He's I'm quick. quick. And we'll He's take quick. a picture of the T-shirt. He's a quick, <laughs> He's a quick change artist. Uh, YouTube channel, Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Yeah, yeah uh, the John Whitney, our, our YouTube producer, puts out and does a remarkable job yeah, with very that. Cool, very cool. I have cool. a friend, yeah. Rick Andreessen. A little shout-out to Rick Andreessen, who now watches... Uh, no offense. He still Thanks, he, he loved he loved listening to the podcast. But now him and his wife actually sit down and watch the video like a TV show every week instead of listening. I like it. Yeah, they watch it. So uh, it, it, that's a lot of fun to watch as well because you get to see some of the shenanigans. Some some of the shenanigans. They're going like, wow, they almost drank that whole bottle. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it down here in a second. Yeah, yeah, we will after the podcast. So uh, many thanks to Alex Hasty. Uh, continued success with uh, Ohio v. The World, man, and continued success with everything in your life. Thanks, I, brother. I know you're recently married, and and, and and you got a dog. I got a dog. Uh, you got a dog. And, That's the beginning of the end there, Alex, and, by the way. And then by the <laughs> next podcast, maybe... Who knows? A kid. Hey, we'll, we'll start trying. How's that? Two dogs. <laughs> two dogs. <laughs> no kid, two dogs. Uh, let me say what I always say at the end of one of these. Uh, Whiskey Business is a Never the Luck production. Uh, produced by Greg Hansberry right here on the audio side. And you can't see him. John Whitney, thumbs up over there on the YouTube side. And I am your host, Dina Chaputis. All the opinions are those of me, your host, and my sometimes reluctant, but in this case, very informative and educational and entertaining, Alex Hasty. You're a very charming man. Thanks, buddy. You're a very charming times. man. Let's do it again next year. Yeah, we'll do it again next year. So, until the next bottle, see ya. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 